Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. Today, Ella Alfrey will be joined by one of our best of young British novelists for Jenny Fagan. Fagan's critically acclaimed debut novel, The Panopticon, was published in 2012 and named one of the Waterstones' Eleven, a selection of the best fiction debuts of the year. Her poetry has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and her collection, The Dead Queen of Bohemia, was named 3M Magazine's Poetry Book of the Year. She holds an MA in Creative Writing from Royal Holloway, University of London, and currently lives in a coastal village in Scotland. Zephyr's, in the issue, is an excerpt from her novel In Progress. Today she spoke about the care system, how a library round nourished her love of reading from a young age, and her days in a band. Hi Jenny, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you, thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I want to start talking a little bit about Panopticon, your, your novel. Um, it's a dark tale about um, sort of children living within the care system, just to put it generally. And I wanted to know where this idea first came from. The Panopticon originally was a novel I didn't want to write. Uh, I wanted my first novel to be have lots of beautiful landscapes and be very kind of writerly and, and, and authorly and um, I'd grown up in the care system myself and you know quite a few times other writers had said why don't you why don't you ever write about it and it was just such a topical subject and uh, and really close to home that I just didn't didn't want to go there so I was um, in London living in Peckham and studying at Greenwich and I was studying structuralism among other things and um, the whole process of structuralism just really resonated with me and how society structures itself and how there's always you know the binary superior and the binary inferior and everything self and other and how the self projects all these qualities onto the other and how this has always happened in society and um, and I just felt like I had this kind of unique insight into a world that as a writer I, I became more drawn to and I hadn't seen a character like any in literature written in that particular way and um, I got quite frustrated just seeing these very dehumanising depictions of kids within the system and knowing that that really isn't the case you know and there seemed to be you know a real you know I've had people say oh, I've never met anybody like you before meaning somebody who grew up within the care system and and I would think well kids in the care system are like any other kids you know we're we're, we're just kids I was it? struck very much in the novel that about the way they create family for mm. themselves the way that they look after each other mm. and even sometimes um, to the extent that you know it's quite a brutal it's a brutal life that you describe and mm. I was never really sure if I I kept wondering if I could love this child mm. and in the end I decided that maybe I couldn't and that mm. made me feel awful mm. yeah well, I mean, Anae particularly has been in in the system since she was born, and she's moved upward of 50 times. So she's so heavily institutionalised and has found so many ways to deal with it um, that that really intrigued me as well. I wanted to create a character that wasn't always going to be comfortable to be around and that would challenge um, the reader on their journey in the book. And I was reading Hampson's Hunger at the time and Journey to the End of Night by Celine. And both the protagonists are, you know, 
awkwardly challenging and very engaged with how they observe society and people and social decorum and these things. And so Ine was really quite inspired, inspired by that. And I felt like it was a real risk, you know, because I know that, you know, she's, at times the, the realness of how she lives is very uncomfortable, you know, but I felt to be real and true to her, I had to not be afraid of that and I had to really go for it and allow that character to be who they would be, you know? So I had to really step back as an author in a way. And when I allowed Ine and the other characters to really hold their own and really become themselves, that's when the novel came alive. Yes. You know, she didn't want to do what what I wanted her to do. Because I you don't necessarily give us a promise or the security of any kind of happiness at the end. No. Not at all. And um and I surprised myself thinking how much I really wanted that, sort of mm. desperately. Mm. And that's the thing about being able to read about a character like Ana is, you know, she has this great bravado and she's very witty and she's very sharp and she engages with the police and social workers and psychologists in the school. Um, but in private, you get to share moments like when she says to somebody for the very first time, I just want a mum. I just wish my mum was here. You know, she's just a kid that's trying to outsmart a system that really is going to kill her. Mm. And she knows it's going to. And that's really what makes Anae so compelling because she's aware of what that institutionalization does. Yes, people. I think that awareness. And so it's very interesting hearing you talk about sort of the literary and academic underpinnings because mm. one of the things that's so magical about the book is the language. Mm. You feel as if you're experiencing from the point of view of a child that age. Mm. And um, I, I just wonder how, you know, it, so even though it's something that's maybe from your own experience having grown up in care, mm. there's a lot more to it that makes it a truly literary novel and I wonder about sort of that that crafting of it you know mm. uh, talk to me a little bit about the period during which you were writing and and you know what were the voices coming at you to, to produce the work well when I started the novel um you know I was very aware that I wanted to write a fictional novel and I wanted to place it within a specific framework which became the Panopticon I was reading Michael Foucault at the time and it it just seemed like a really great metaphor for the way you're observed all the time in institutions everywhere all the time now in office work and schools and the care systems are a really pronounced example of it but we're all accountable all the time to everybody else and observed and we engage in that every day with social media and it just seemed like the original blueprint for what you know modern CCTV cultures become what modern social media has become we're all living in a panopticon you know, that that we kind of happily engage in. So you wanted to, to place her within that framework and mm-hmm. then so and then show us what it was like to, to try and survive as a child in that situation. Yeah, because I think you know, when I look at my, my goddaughter who's sixteen and other kids now I'm and my son and I think you're never gonna remember a time when there wasn't social media. You know, I, I still grew up when, you know, people had really old phones, you had square buttons on your telly uh, you know, we, we didn't live in the same way, mm. and I'm interested in how that is going to impact upon upon people. Because for me, go- growing up when when I was in the care system, it didn't feel like a natural way to be a kid, to be observed by adults all the time mm. or a lot of the time, 
I, I just don't think that's how how um, how kids be free and how they you know they learn how to be themselves. That's why they're always trying to get away from their parents <laughs> or you know because that's that's you know they need to be with each other. They need to, yeah. and that's um, I guess I wanted to to have a real joy in the book. You know, because these, ki- these, these kids yes. have a real joy in life and yes. in each other, and they're very passionate and they're very loyal and they're very gutsy, and you know they want to go out and and get high and stare at the stars and talk about existence. Yes. You know, but they're yeah. not just. It's interesting because you said at the beginning of, of our conversation that you wanted to write a book about landscapes and, and make it really writerly. Why? Why did you think that books had to be that way, or was there there's a longing for something there? Yeah, I guess. Um, I spent quite a bit of my, my time in my 20s just really evaluating where being and where I was heading and I found myself at that time spending loads and loads of time in nature walking and just felt very connected to the earth in a way and to the, the landscapes in Scotland and it, it felt like something, um, it felt like you know your bones belonging to something and I was just really drawn to writing about them in a kind of painterly way. You know, I think very visually and, you know, I stash images all the time that will turn up later in novels. So I guess I felt like when I was walking that almost like the earth accepted me or, you know, to be hippified about it, like, you know, there's something that really connects you and roots you about being out in these big landscapes. So I really wanted to write about them and I was really passionate about it. And that was going to be my first novel and I was going to really enjoy that. And then this novel came along and everything. But, he, but even in that, you, you said that's a really beautiful phrase about your, your bones belonging somewhere. And I'm mm. guessing that if you're growing up away from family, mm. that that there's a need for belonging. And it's interesting yeah. that you would find that in nature. Is that still yeah. the case? Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, I, I lived in London for quite a long time. And I loved the parks here, but I really missed hills and mountains and, um, and being near the sea. Uh, just after my son was born I really wanted to be near the sea and my partner and I tried to drive to I don't know but still or somewhere and it took us two and a half hours and we ended up sitting in a graveyard having a picnic and I was just <laughs> like this is not right and <laughs> um, so yeah I, I do spend a lot of time in nature and walking and I think it helps it helps with your writing as well it helps you to put things right in your head and to get ideas and just to to clear clear all the space out as you speak, I find myself wondering if you always thought of yourself as a writer. You talk about stashing images mm. and the way that you structure the novels and the different things that influenced it. Um, do you think you were always a writer? Um, yeah, I do. I think um, I started writing poetry when I was about seven and short stories about eight or nine. And I was always, you know, I loved anybody who could tell a story. And that generally meant older people. So, you know, I would go and hassle the old man next door at his gate when I came back from school and see if he would tell me a story about something. And he would, actually, every night. That that one would say that he had a mouse pie for his tea. <laughs> and I would always think, really? And I would go home <laughs> and I'd think, I think he does, you know? So anybody who could tell me a story, and it generally it tended to be older people, would have the time and the patience to sit down and they would have really great stories. So I would listen to anyone. You know, I've had people tell me great stories at bus stops I've never seen again. Um, do you still do that? Do you still yeah. ask for stories? Yeah, and it's just generally just you just start chatting with somebody, and they just. I've always been somebody that people will tell their stories anyway. Um, do you ever just steal the story? It would have to be something that I could. Yeah, there are some. Like I met an old man at a bus stop, 
uh, when I was about, I don't know, I was about 17, 18 and I was going home and it was really heavy snow, a uh, really cold night, really heavy snow everywhere, it was all coming down and he was really distinguished looking, he was wearing a cravat, a nice suit and we were waiting on a bus and he said, oh I love the snow, he said, um, it reminds me of, of silence and he said, uh, he started telling me this story about these native Canadian Indians that had lived next to the water all their life and they'd heard the sound of the water all their life and, and that was the sound, you know, it was just, that was the sound of life, that was just normal. And there's this huge storm one day and all these big trees crash down across the river and they wake up to the sound of silence and they go mad mm. because they can't take the sound of silence. The sound of silence is so loud. Oh, it's changed. Yeah. Yeah. And and that old guy, that story, you know, has stayed with me. And actually, one of the characters in my new novel is very obsessed with finding an anechoic chamber and experiencing true silence. And there's one in Japan that's very expensive to go to, and, and people, um, most people can't take the sound of actual silence. So yeah, that old guy at a bus stop, his his story will end up. That story he told me will end up in something and ends up in something and. But generally, from people in actual life, you know, I wouldn't... I, I just feel morally to just directly take somebody's story. I couldn't do it. But surely when you were writing your first novel, those characters, did mm. they not come in some way from people you knew or children you'd grown up with? Partly, but they're all fictional characters, all including Anae. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I wrote my own life story when I was about 21, and I really needed to just kind of get it out the road... Mm. So I could then learn to write. So you could then learn to you know? write. So I, I, I made all my mistakes. I did all my stuff in, in private with that. And by the time I got to the Panopticon, I was I was ready to start fresh <clears throat> and let these characters come to me kind of thing. I love that idea of you, even as a little girl, asking for stories. Um, mm. Were you reading a lot? I read constantly. Tell me so who you read. I loved Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. I love Roald Dahl. Um, I love Tolkien. I read everything by Enid Blyton at one point. I loved Morris Sendak, Where the Wild Things Are. Yes. It was a great book. Michael Delarabetti's uh, The Borables Across the Dark Metropolis. I loved that at the time. And I would literally read anything and everything. And, and where was, were you getting the books? Um, there was a library van. At that point, I lived in a caravan park next to a coal mine. And... Um, the city dump was on the other side and there was a big industrial estate so this is half an hour outside Edinburgh and um, kind of mountains on the back and forests and um, the library van would come out once a week and I would go total up and, and once I'd read everything they had for me to read they would get me more stuff to read and they were great they were you know they were just they were the lifeline really um, and, and they're really really valuable and actually my best friend who lived in the caravan park at the time she now has her own library van and she has oh. my book on her library van and she was so pleased to get my book in her library it's van because I used to always tell her stories when we were kids she used to you know demand stories from me and I tell her stories so um yeah when I see the library cuts I'm so you know heartbroken for all these people that need need novels yes. and need poetry they yes. need gardening books you know and they can't get them how about as you grew up and and I don't know if did you move away you moved away from the place where the library fan was how about when you grew up where were your books um, coming from then I would read books at school I would I would if I had money I would I would you know I would buy books did I, you have an, an English teacher who sort of pushed yeah, things along always, for you always always um I had a few in primary school I had a teacher called Mrs Kite who 
when I was only about eight, said to the class, I'm, I'm entirely convinced that I'll walk into a bookshop one day and pick up a book with Jenny Fagan's name on the spine. And, uh, and I always remembered things like that because I didn't tell everybody that I wrote, you know, but it was a it was a it was a, a constant thing for me. You know, I moved a lot. I'm 35. I've moved about 32, 33 times. Mm. So everywhere I went, I would write and everywhere I went, I would read. You know, it's a very portable way of making yourself at home somewhere. Yes. And it's and it's a private space. So, yeah. Where um. You you spoke a little bit about your, your new book and the the short story you have in this Granta Best of Young British Novelists issue, mm. um, very much has that sense of landscape. We 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 are on a, a bus journey, mm. but you very much feel the landscape that the characters moving through. It's dark, but mm. it's it's very vibrant, very alive. And even mm. when he reaches his destination, you have that that sense of, of landscape. Mm. He seems a very different character from the girl that mm. we met in Panopticon, and there's a stillness to mm. this. Is this because the story is very different, or do you think that now that you've written that book that you are trying something entirely different? Will there be things that people will recognise in your second book? Um, I think I'm always relatively drawn to peripheral characters in some way or another, or peripheral, peripheral communities, peripheral landscapes, you know, it's what I understand. Um, but each novel I have kind of vaguely outlined is very different. I never wanted to write the same novel twice, never wanted to revisit the same subject twice, and I really wanted to challenge myself with each one to try and keep becoming a better writer. So... Um, this one's it's it's totally different, really, and obviously there are elements of you know humor and things that are distinctive to my voice that still leak into different characters um but really now they're all different, and they all start with a question you know the the panopticon started with the question is it possible to achieve autonomy you know if society mm. gives you one message about yourself your entire life and, and you begin to believe that is it possible to reclaim who you are in those circumstances and and for many people it's not for many people they do that's what i was fascinated by so so in each novel that's there will be a, a thing there and that will become what the novel will will grow into does the does the novel answer the question no quite often no no, no it doesn't it doesn't. But I guess the important thing is that it's making your readers ask themselves that mm. same question. And really, it's it's, you know, it's my question. It's something that's really calling to you at that time, and you're really thinking, what is this? It's, it's like a great puzzle, you know, and you're you're following all these different clues, and then you're just. Does that mad. mean that as a reader, you're going to books for answers, or are you still seeking questions in the books that you want to read as well? I like the questions and I love stuff that captures things that can't be captured in other ways, you know? Like in Elizabeth Bishop's poem, The Man Moth, there's a bit where she, she the man moth stares down and he sees the whole of man as wide as the shadow of his hat. So they're looking down on a, you know, a, a circular hat, which actually became the influence for the experiment, the characters in the experiment. Um, and in another part, the man moth looks up and he sees... Um, he sees the moon as this tiny hole in the sky and he wants to fly up there and see what's on the other side and um, ever since that I've always you know if I see the moon I always think of it but Elizabeth Bishop's man moth trying to see what's on the other side was just such a great way of thinking about well the sky's there but what's beyond the sky yes and what if the moon was just a portal you know and I think poetry and, and fiction can 
they can sum things up in a way that you might spend years doing in philosophy or, or things that are much more laborious, you know? It's a much more humane connection, and that's, that's what I love. Yes. That's what I really like. You speak and, and your hand gestures when you're talking to me about the poetry and the, mm. the books that you, you love. Um, it seems this, as this provides sustenance. Mm. What else does? What about music? And um, yeah, I mean, you couldn't get by without music. Really, can get yeah, by without music. Particularly, tell me what you love. I yeah. love. I've always loved music. I used to love playing the piano. I never learned to play the piano, but I would love playing the piano. Um, and singing's just a great way to. to because just, you belong to a band. Yeah, I used yeah. to sing a lot when I was younger, um, and now I sing. You know, I just sing. I've always sang. You know, it's if I was walking in, at night time, I would sing like a loon. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that so much now but um no i i, I adore music and I, I love art you know i love artists i love walking around uh, galleries i always thought it would be much more fun to be an artist mm-hmm. and I, I do you know i make art sometimes or i'll do photography but really i feel like um the path of words is just a lifelong thing and to really you know get there and do the work you want to do it's got to be a whole lifetime of it yes you know? yes um that the idea of, of sort of being 35 and having moved 33 times mm. is one that I wanted to go back to because um, we've talked about sort of the, the landscape and the land giving you identity and, and sort of belonging and mm. your, your portable books and reading mm. and writing mm. being another way. But is there a place now that you, you think you call home? I mean, do you, do you feel that, or, you know, is, is Scotland or you, you've lived in London? Um, yeah, look. Coming back to London always does feel like home, actually. Yes. You know, I've got, you know, my my son's, um, he was born here, and his father's from here. Um, and Scotland is, you know, part part of Scotland is a home as well, but now I, I've never felt like I had a home that was, that's my place that's home, you know? I find places that I'm kind of drawn to, um, and people that are home, you know, friends and people I've known for a long time, um... But now I don't, and, and myself and my partner, we do talk about where, where will we settle? Where will be the place we mm. want to bring our son up? And uh, and I really want it to be in the same place. You know, I want Hamish to go to the same primary school and the same high school and have friends and and be able to do that and be part of a community. But I just, I don't know. And I think loads of people don't know. You know, I yeah, speak to so many do. friends. We're all everywhere, and we're all kind of thinking, where is that place? Where you know, is that place? community yeah. so dislocated yeah you know I mean I guess I'm thinking of it especially as you know we're identifying British novelists and mm. you know as as we read through the list asking ourselves what that means and finding that it means so many different things mm. um as we're speaking I, I'm trying I'm sort of casting back to your novel and the story that we have in the issue I don't think you name places I think I know that I always had a very strong sense of being there with the characters, but you don't give places names. Is that something that, that happens consciously, so your stories sort of can be more universal, or is it just not the way that you, you, you think things through? It's a good question. I haven't really I haven't thought about it too much, but actually in this novel, the, the, the place isn't named either. And I think I like the fact that it could be anywhere. I think I like the fact that, you know, um, obviously, you know, the Panopticon is written using Scottish colloquial dialects, so that, you know, that, that grounds it in place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like, kind of like the fact that you you couldn't really go looking for it and think, oh, it's there. Yes. You know, it exists in the world it's in. Um, 
So yeah, that's a really interesting one. Yeah. I'll need to keep thinking about that <laughs> as I keep writing novels. Yeah, but and that's see, that, see what that's about. Yeah, <laughs> but I yeah. think for 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 me as a reader, what it does is that it makes it forces a kind of ownership of mm. of a story mm. because it it could be down my street or yeah. you know around that corner, and yeah. I found that quite powerful and. Mm. Um, Yes, so we'll, we'll watch and see see how it happens. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about sort of this this idea of putting a list together of, of twenty writers every ten years. Mm-hmm. And um, I I I keep wondering how each writer feels about thinking of our of our past lists. Um, is it a good feeling? It's <laughs> great. It's a great feeling. It's it's um, yeah. I find that I was at home and I was in my kitchen and. Um, and John rang, and it was very, very, very surreal. And I, I jumped around and then started, I thought I was going to cry. And then I had absolutely nothing useful to say. I was just like, I'm rendered completely articulate by this information. <laughs> and uh, John was chatting and being really nice. And I was just thinking, I have, I'm just so gobsmacked, I can't actually speak. So, um, yeah, when I, I regained regained the power of of speech i told my toddler because he wasn't going to tell anyone because he's he well he was only 18 well 20 months or so at the time um and yeah it's just been great it's been so it's been so strange and to be among all those authors and that the history of it and you know lots of authors that i've admired and and i read and and go to um and return return to their work it's 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 a huge honour. It's a great thing. It's a really, really cool thing. Yeah. Mm. Jenny, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you. Thank you, Ella. Thanks for listening to the Granter Podcast. Available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud and on selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granter, please visit our website, granter.com forward slash subscribe.